Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Last week, Nate started a series and we're going to be preaching through and and the, the series title is Spiritual Disciplines. And that sounds like what it is, right? Disciplines. And I think when you think about the early followers of Jesus, in, in the Bible, they're generally called disciples. And I always have sort of a funny reaction to words like that, because they mean something so specific when you're in church, but you barely ever use them anywhere else. And sometimes words like that can, can invite misconception. They can invite misconception when you're like, oh yeah, you know, I'm just trying to disciple this guy, and you're like, what does that mean? That doesn't mean anything to anyone outside. Or like, can you imagine walking up to someone who's not a follower of Jesus and be like, hey, I would love to disciple you. They're like, what kind of cult nonsense are you talking about? And so I think to mitigate confusion, there's something that's actually really healthy about finding terms that carry the same message, but in a contemporary way. And so student is kind of a good word, um, but that's not quite like we have a good, uh, like, sort of vision for what a student is, but uh, a lot of times when we think student, we think like high school, middle school, and those people aren't generally people you try to aspire to be like. And so, um, that was a joke, that was supposed to, like you were supposed to, ah, like not just me being mean to young people. Um, thank you, yeah, so funny. Um, and, and I think another word that I think is actually really helpful is the word apprentice. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not like using apprentice on a daily basis, but it's a concept that is alive and well in our culture. There are many trades that you actually cannot do, like kind of legally, unless you undergo an apprenticeship. And under an apprenticeship, what you're doing is you are studying with a master to learn the disciplines you need to do any given profession. And this is something that um, stems from all sorts of different things. This is not just like um, like uh, teaching sort of disciplines, but also uh, like electricians and plumbers and those kinds of things. You have an apprenticeship to become a master, and you apprentice with a master. So last week, Nate used the analogy of a gym. Like this spiritual disciplines is like the gym. You know, it's like you have to develop routines. You have to you have to balance with that. I know nothing about the world of gyms. So I'm going to use this example instead. Um, And I think the emphasis on studying under a master is really helpful because ultimately this life with Jesus is not just about us um, dying and having an eternal destiny. I don't want you to mishear me. We will die and we do have an eternal destiny when you follow Jesus, but there's more to life than just dying, if that makes sense. That the kingdom of God is, is active and happening today. That Jesus himself would say the kingdom of God is near us. So we want to be healthy, um, acceptable disciples, apprentices under our master who is Jesus. So to begin this series in earnest, um, Nate and I talked about it. And we decided to start with reading the Bible. And there's a really good reason for this because as we go through different spiritual disciplines and different uh, modes of thinking and different things like that, um, we're going to be using the Bible to explain those things. So if you don't think the Bible is is like important or valuable, um, a lot of these other things you're just going to be able to like gloss over. So I'm going to, my aim today is to defend the Bible. Even our denomination itself, our very first um, statement of truth, our, our very first fundamental truth in our statement of faith that was laid down over a hundred years ago. Um, is that the Bible is inspired by God, that we believe that it is the authoritative word of God. 
So within this series, and even today, you're going to hear advice. And advice inherently is based off of experience. But I want to begin with the idea that this, this, this discipline of reading the scripture, this discipline uh, associated with following Jesus is not just good advice. That this is something that the authority of God itself speaks to. This doctrine is not just something we like, thought was a good idea. This is something that is of God. So let's look at 2 Timothy 3, not for the last time. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 16, Paul is writing to his protege Timothy, a, a fledging pastor of a church, and he says this in conclusion of his thought process. All scripture, starting in verse 16, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training and righteousness, verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And it's also important to me um, to make this clarification that we don't just believe the Bible because the Bible says you should believe the Bible, because um, that is textbook circular reasoning, right? It's like, well, I believe this should happen because this should happen. So it, it happens. Um, but what compels me so actively is that Jesus himself affirms and trusts the scriptures. And I think that's something that, like, outside of just the biblical evidence that Jesus affirmed the scriptures, um, Jesus was noted by all of his followers and everyone who witnessed him that he was a Jewish rabbi that introduced this glorious movement that we've come to call Christianity, the church, whatever. And so we're not just trusting the Bible because of its inherent literary masterpiece-ness, although that is valuable. Lots of people who don't follow Jesus study the Bible for its literary excellence, but we study the Bible and we trust the Bible because Jesus did. Does that make sense? So I want to I give you a roadmap for this morning. Um, I like to do this sometimes, so that way if I'm lingering in a thought, you know we're going somewhere. Just hang in there with me. So number one, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about what the Bible is not and what the Bible is. I think this is very important uh, clarification. Number two, we're going to talk about the chief purpose for reading the Bible. And finally, we're going to talk about practical tips, and I'm going to recommend to you guys some resources. This is a little out of our thing. We usually talk about like teaching what the Bible says, but today we're going to talk about how to learn from the Bible. So it's a little, a little different, a little different, but all good and fine. What isn't on this list that I think is important, but I decided, I think by the Lord's inspiration to not go into this morning, is where the Bible came from. And I understand this is a, a, a hot controversial issue for a lot of people that uh, thanks to the History Channel and many skeptical people all over the world, they've criticized heavily where the Bible came from. And I just want to say on the outset, the history of the Bible is well documented, and it's not nearly as controversial as people will like you to believe. And so if that's a discussion you're interested in, I'm not, like, joking. I highly recommend come talk to me after today, after, like, this um, sermon this morning, and I would love to talk you through it. I would love to recommend resources for you. If there's enough of us who are interested, like, yeah, like, I've heard these crazy rumors about how the Bible, the canon was closed, and we, we like, oppressed certain authors of books and all these sort of things. I would love to, like, I have a fantastic teaching that, like, really shaped a lot of my thoughts on this. I would love to even host a viewing. Like, we can go to my house and we can watch this teaching so that way a lot of those um, skeptical sort of reservations can be put to rest. But that's not what we're going to be talking about this morning. Does that make sense? So let's begin with what the Bible is not. A lot, of the, a lot of people come to the Bible and end up walking away disappointed because they're looking for something that isn't there. 
And I was trying to think of a, a really just like open-ended example that will affirm this sort of idea. So that way you're not just thinking I'm like trying to, I, I, I hope by the end of the day you, you understand about me that I have a really high like affinity and respect and love for the scripture. Um, and I want you to understand correctly what it is so that way you're not coming to it expecting something else. So I was trying to think of a metaphor that would explain this. There's a, a film that came out that changed, I think, the world. In 1992, Jurassic Park came out. Has, has anybody ever seen Jurassic Park? Okay, not all of us. That's disappointing. Um, you should. It's really good. The, I can't really speak to the, 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 the films that come after it, but Jurassic Park won is really good. But I'm telling you, if you go home today and you get on like whatever uh, Hulu or whatever Jurassic Park is on, and you watch it and you're convinced, by the end of this, whatever, 90 minutes, I'm going to be able to clone a dinosaur, you will be disappointed. <laughs> and that sounds funny because you're like, that's not what Jurassic Park is for. That's not the point. But if you come to it with this mindset like, oh, this movie's about cloning dinosaurs, so I should be able to watch it and clone dinosaurs. You will not learn that information, and I and I I put that I I posit that into your mind so that way when you come to the scriptures thinking about what it isn't, you're not disappointed when you don't find those things, because there'll be a lot of situations where you come to a story and you're like, okay, in the next chapter they're going to explain this, and then they don't, <laughs> and you're like, I don't understand why 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 is this leaving me wanting information? We've got to understand what it isn't so we can properly respect what it is. So number one, um, and I didn't try to make this list uh, intentionally provocative because it sounds like, what are you talking about? The Bible totally does those things. A little bit of this is true, but we have to understand not just little bits, we have to understand holes, you know, um, like the entirety. So number one, the thing that I wrote down that the Bible is not, is the Bible is not a rule book or a toolbox for morality. Again, I believe the Bible says so much about morality. There are commands and demands in the scripture, but what I mean to say with this is the Bible is not a reference manual that you can just flip and point and accuse people and condemn people. That's not what the Bible exists for. It's not for anything you quote unquote need in any given moment. You need to understand the Bible as a whole because there will be confusing sections where you're like, people have, have used the Bible to permit polygamy and slavery, and abuse, and genocide, and those kinds of things, well, those are right here. We need to understand the scripture as a whole, not just in little chunks. Does that make sense? If I need to hang up a painting, I'm not just going to go get every single tool in my toolbox. I just use one tool, right? And the Bible is not like this. We have all of it in context of all of it. And this is valuable because um, I kind of tacked this on this morning, but I think it's, it's important to understand in the outset that in this sort of same realm as a toolbox, uh, rule book sort of thing, is the Bible's not like a choose-your-own-adventure book. Did you ever read any of those? Like in, uh, I don't think they really make them so much anymore. But like, the idea is, like, well, I, wanna, I want a quick resolution, so I'm just going like, to choose that ending that resolves really quickly, or I want a more complicated resolution, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read differently. Um, the Bible says something. The passages of the Bible can say a lot of things, but they say something that was intended by the author. So it's not open to our interpretation in that manner, where it's like, well, I kind of feel like this, this verse about not getting divorced is actually about getting divorced. You know, it's like we can't change what it means based on how we feel or we think. We're, our job is to uncover what it actually says. 
So um, it's not a choose-your-own-adventure. It's not a rule book. It's not a toolbox. Number two, it's not a science or a history book. Again, I believe that the Bible is, is historically accurate. And, and I would say that with the utmost confidence. And some of you are like, well, what about this or that? Or I've, I heard this guy on the History Channel say this or that. I believe that the Bible is historically accurate on the grounds that we judge other historical documents. Not just on the grounds of like, well, I like it, so it must be good. You know, it's like on scientific evidence, it is historically accurate. I believe that it is telling the truth and there is no uh, way about that. But see, the way a textbook works versus the Bible is that um, we, we don't just get to busy ourselves with questions like, when or how? Because the critical reader, and honestly, the adult reader of the Old Testament will open Genesis and be like, how did he create plants before he created the sun? How does that work? You know, and, and you're looking at these things and you're like, oh, I, I want to form my worldview here. This is supposed to form my worldview. What is this saying? And, and I'm not trying to make any sort of like affirmative statement here, but what you'll find in the Bible is it doesn't care about when or how. Oftentimes, that's never an explanation. So you'll read these horrific stories in the Old Testament, and you'll be like, when are they going to explain the meaning of that? You know, like, when are they going to break that down? And they really don't. Even for hundreds and hundreds of years, they don't explain the significance of things. I think the Bible is very concerned with, with questions like, why and what it is? And, and I think one of the best things about trusting what the Scripture says is it doesn't shy away from its own bloody history that the history of the people of Israel, our own history, is bruised. But the Lord is good. And so we're not looking to the Bible to explain to us phenomenon like a textbook. We're looking for something differently. Number three, and this one is probably the most like confusing sounding one, so I'll get to the explanation really fast. Number three, the Bible is not a purely human work nor a purely divine work because it's both. So if you're just taking notes from that, it sounds like I'm saying it's neither of those things. It's both of those things at the same time. And that distinction is really important. And maybe that doesn't necessarily resonate with you right now, but I hope that it does. Because if it was just an artifact that dropped from heaven that had no human intervention, there would be something sort of strange about that. And there's lots of world religions that claim this, that, oh, our revelation is, is perfect because it came directly from God. But the Bible has never shied away from the idea that God used human authors to compose a work. That to the time period and the setting of the culture that it was written, it made so much sense. But because it was composed by a transcendent God, it still is absolutely 100% relevant to us today. And that distinction is really valuable and helps us on how we understand what the Bible says. So as we head into what the Bible is, we talked about what the Bible isn't. As we head into what the Bible is, I want to look at Luke chapter 24. If you have your Bible with you, um, you can flip there with me. Um, I want to set the stage for Luke 24. What we've seen so far is that um, Jesus has been in his incarnate ministry. He's been traveling. He's been preaching and teaching, declaring the kingdom of God, doing these mighty things. And now, towards the end of this phase of history, Jesus is arrested. He's tried. He's sentenced to death and then crucified publicly. Extremely recently in the story, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's appeared to a few people. Now we catch up as two disciples are, 
arguing and reflecting on the events that just happened, and then Jesus somehow conceals his identity and walks up beside them. So let's look at verse 17 in Luke 24. And he, he being Jesus, said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, they stood still looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? Jesus is so silly, right? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him over to the sentence of death and crucified him. Verse 21 says, But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early this morning and they did not find his body. They came saying that they'd also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women also said, but, they did not, but him they did not see. Verse 25, And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27 says this, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he, he being this concealed Jesus, explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him, saying, stay with us, for it's getting towards evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in and stayed with them. Verse 30, and he, when he had reclined at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it. Breaking it, he began to give it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road? While he was explaining the scriptures to us. To highlight verse 27, Jesus used the Bible, the Old Testament, to describe who Jesus actually is. Verses that had likely been in these two disciples' lives for decades now became so much clearer because the author actually spoke on them with authority. And I love the reaction of these disciples because... Um, they were rightly sad and confused, but when they were confronted with the word of God, illuminated by Jesus, their hearts were burning. Don't think acid reflux. <laughs> think, I mean, maybe acid reflux. That could be something that would catch your attention. But I think like passion. I think like thrill. I think like you're exhilarated because something that is so universally perfectly true is now absolutely clear to you. And their hearts weren't burning because of a miracle. Because what they witnessed was a miracle. Like Jesus somehow hid his identity. I don't know if he was wearing like one of those nose with glasses or something like that. I don't know how he concealed his identity. The Bible doesn't care to explain that either. But they didn't know who he was. And he spoke the word of God. And then he revealed himself by the breaking of bread and these kinds of things. And then he disappeared. Their hearts weren't burning because Jesus disappeared. Their hearts were burning. And they were reflecting on the fact like, man, when he was talking to us. When he was explaining the Bible to us, I was on fire. That was life-changing things. This is the power and significance and dignity ascribed to this written work of the Lord and of man. So what the Bible is, through this sort of definition, and really, uh, it's so nice because the Bible does interpret itself. It is a fantastic resource that way. 
um, the Bible affirms that it's not just a textbook. It's not just um, some facts. It doesn't just deal with morality. I like the way uh, Dr. Tim Mackey defines this. Um, the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And why it's valuable considering it that way, that it's not a manual or something like that, is that a story can give you a lot of clarity to confusing sections because stories have plots and goals and purposes. And we can trace the plots and goals and purposes of God throughout the whole library of scripture that they're connected. And it's like, um, it was actually Tim Mackey too. I was going to make it sound like it was a different teacher. It's the same guy. He was talking about this, like, it's like jazz. If you've ever listened to like jazz or even like a symphony or a musical or an overture that you hear the initial themes and then the rest of the concept is riffing on those initial themes. Have you ever, have you ever watched like a musical and they have that intro sequence where there's like people like jumping in and themes and people are singing and those kinds of things. And then if you've watched it a couple times, you realize those are the different themes of those individual characters. They come up later, all those sort of things. I've seen like two musicals change my life. It was a beautiful thing. And I think if, if you think closely about a word like unified and you've spent some time in the Bible, that can feel sort of conflicting because the Bible is all over the place. If you read Genesis, Genesis is pretty different than Ephesians. If you read Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon is very different than Leviticus. And, and it can feel strange to call that unified, but they're all capturing the same purpose. And an important part of understanding what the Bible is is understanding literary genres. And at the risk of this sounding confusing, this is actually something that's really liberating and exciting about reading the Bible, is that it's not just the same kind of story every single time. It's just like in our lives, when you read a recipe, it's not the same kind of literature as when you're reading a fiction novel. It's not the same kind of literature when you're studying for a class in, at a university. It's not the same kind of thing, but all of those things teach you things in unique ways. So there's three kind of what I, what I like to call like umbrella genres of, of literature in the Bible. Number one, I think I have that on the screen. Yes. Number one is narrative. Narrative is things like history. Um, you've got like different stories. You've got the gospels, even to a certain extent, like parables and things like that. There's narrative that are just telling a story. Number two is poetry. These are things like, like the Psalms. There's like uh, wisdom literature like Proverbs that are a little bit more symbolic and, and representative. They're a little bit more creative in the, in the expression. Number three is discourse. And this is things that are like direct teaching. You can think of books of the law. You can think of like letters in the New Testament, um, these epistolic sort of things. Those are uh, just direct discourse. They say what they're saying. You know what I mean? And this goes on to include crazy things like apocalyptic literature and prophecy that we don't even necessarily have an example for how that works anymore. We actually have to go back to the way the audience would understand those things because we don't even have really anything to compare it to appropriately. And I think this is a, a, a beautiful measure, and I was just talking with Nate about this beforehand, that uh, beyond all these sort of distinctions and classifications and these sort of things, um, the Jewish people who contributed so heavily to the Bible and also the way of Jesus in the early years had a different way that they treated their sacred writings. And uh, I remember talking to a young girl years and years ago. I was an intern at a church, and I was just trying to relate to the teens, you know. And I was like, so how's Bible reading going? And she's like, oh, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? And, and in, uh, it used to be called missionettes back in the day. 
But now it's just, I think it's just called Girl Ministries, but it's something that our denomination does to disciple young women like Girl Scouts. And, uh, and she's like, yeah, with missionettes, we, we read the Bible in a year, and I'm ahead of schedule, so I'm done. And I was like really feeling awkward about it. I was like, do you think you'll read it again? <laughs> and she's like, uh, yeah, maybe, probably. And I was like, okay, I need to talk. I don't know who's in charge of missionettes, but we need to talk to them because we've, we've communicated this differently. She's very proud of herself for finishing the whole Bible. And she's like 13 at the time. So I was like, that's awesome. But that's not the point. The point isn't like, well, you crossed the finish line and now you're done. You know, the way the Jewish people thought about this and they referred to it as meditation literature. And I, I have this picture so ingrained in my brain of uh, being in an airport in Germany. And I saw this, this guy that was a rabbi. And I want to tell you, I knew that he was a rabbi because the way that he looked, he had all the gear, you guys. He had like long, pretty like cloaks and robes. And he had like a tall hat and he had a huge beard. And you could tell he was the most respected one because he had this ornate, beautiful copy of the Torah. And he was just staring at one page and we're, he's walking through the airport, just reading the same page over and over and over again, he literally had two assistants that had to make sure he wasn't going to walk off an escalator or something like that. Because he took this idea of meditating on the word of God as a literal command to keep the word of God before you all the time. So when we think about meditation, especially in a place like Pagosa, it's easy to think about this sort of Eastern meditation that is basically essentially the practice of emptying your mind. I used to try and do that when I was a kid, not because of Eastern mysticism, but because like, what, what would it be like if you just weren't thinking about anything? You know, um, and it was extremely difficult to do. That's why people travel all over the world and try to learn how to do this. But in fact, this, I would argue, older form of Eastern meditation is the opposite. It's not about emptying your mind. It's about filling your mind. And so the idea isn't that you just read a book and you're like, all right, I knocked that one off the list. Don't have to go back to that weird thing again. You know, I can, I can, I, I read Song of Solomon and I never have to talk about it again. And... The idea is that you're reading through these things, you're considering these things, you're pondering these things, you're discussing these things with other people, and it's not a race, it's not even a marathon, it's, it's a, a way of life where you're filling yourself with good, nutritious food and a diet that is the word of God. And I think of uh, Psalm 1 is a beautiful picture of this. Psalm 1, starting in verse 1, says this, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Verse 2 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day, and in his law he meditates day and night. Verse 3 says, And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in its season, and leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. So the converse to sitting with wicked people and scoffing and criticizing, and even the Psalms will go on into to violence and vengeance and these sort of attitudes. The opposite, the, the correct course of action, is to be like a tree planted by water. And I don't know if you've ever seen like a tree move around and, and tree goes through dry season and tree goes through this. No, trees are planted where they're planted, and the water being described is the word of God, that they're planted, and that in every season they're producing the fruit that is appropriate. And this isn't prospering like, well, if you meditate on the word of God, baby, you're going to be 
rich. That's not the kind of prospering that is being referenced. This is surviving. This is actual vibrant vitality that is life and true life. So now, if you're following the roadmap, we're going to talk about the chief purpose of the Bible. Why, why do we read the Bible? It's probably like the most stereotypical version of a Christian is reading the Bible. But it's also kind of one of the more complicated parts of being a Christian. Like, if we just get down, like, good practices, like, hey, don't, like, kill people, you know? Uh, I think that's probably something that is easy for a lot of you. I don't know if any of you have really struggled with that temptation very actively. If you have, I'm not here to make fun. I just try to pick on a really extreme one, you know? Like, the Bible says not to kill people. So if you're like, it's just so hard, you know? I've been killing people for so long. It's just hard not to, it's hard to stop killing people. Um, but reading the Bible is, is, is pretty predictable. But the reason that we do it, I want to look back at, at 2 Timothy 3 again that we started with. It says that in verse 16, all scripture, the sacred writings, are inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so it's by this work, by this literary masterpiece by this work of art that is the Bible, the word of God, by it we can know who God is and we can correctly make him known to other people. We read the Bible so we can know who God is and make him known to other people. There's a commentary that, I'm, uh, that I have a quote from. It has two authors, so I don't say like it's a quote from them, so I have them both on there. Um, But they said it this way, the aim of the content of the sacred writings is to relate God's saving purpose in Christ. Timothy's study of the scriptures had grounded him in the wisdom and enlightenment that leads to faith in Jesus Christ. The scriptures lead to salvation, but only as they point to Christ. The scriptures themselves do not provide salvation, but they do point to the Savior who can provide it. The Bible is not God. The Bible is not somehow magical. Um... But it is the, the chief and primary means that we get to know God. And, and I just feel like if, you're, if you want to hear God's voice, if you want to encounter the presence of God, I, I would just argue there's just not a better place to start. There's not a better place to remain, you know? And so that's why we take this very seriously. Andreas uh, Kostenberger, who has two little dots over his O, I couldn't get that in the slide, um, but just so you know, I don't think he's American. Um, he wrote this in his commentary on this passage in 2 Timothy. He said, once again, the message is consistent with Paul's teaching elsewhere. Number one, proper Christian training must be first grounded in Scripture, not merely the passing on of humanistic principles or values. Number two, it must be thorough. There are no, there are no shortcuts to spiritual growth, including both instruction and correction, rather than focusing unilaterally on encouragement. Ouch. Number three, it is not merely for a person's own edification or intellectual stimulation, but for equipment for ministry to others. So as our charge of of Christians to be a witness of the good news about Jesus, to be a witness of Jesus himself, we can know God and, and appropriately make him known to other people. So let's get practical. The goal of our church, the goal of the church, is not to be like really good at Bible trivia. There was a time in my life where I had a dear friend, two friends really, and we had this horrible Bible trivia game here at the church 
that was so difficult. Like, it's like stuff that, like, who has any business knowing any of these things? But we made it our aim to make everybody uncomfortable when we played that game. Because we were so, we were dear friends. We did ministry together. I was like Jessica Searle, Daniel McLean, and we would get vicious playing this Bible trivia game. And it got to a point where I was convicted by the Holy Spirit. I was like, I'm literally going to like study the Old Testament so that way I can one-up Jessica. <laughs> and so we come together on a Sunday night. We're doing youth group. We're working together. And I'm, I'm like, ah, man, I, I probably need to, I, I, I need to say something. And then she's more holy than me, and she comes up, and she's like, I got to repent, man. I got to... <laughs> I, I've, I was studying the Bible just so I could, and I was like, yeah, you do need to repent. That's true. <laughs> um, but we came to this sort of place of, of realizing the point isn't to just have trivial knowledge that you can spout off to impress people. That's not the point of reading the scripture. Look at Ephesians 4. Um, Nate read this last week, and we're going to read it again. Verse 11, it says, he, he being the Lord, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Um, and we look at that and we're like, oh man, what category do I fit in? How do I, how do I define this? That's not even kind of the focus of this passage. That's like a footnote in what the passage is actually about. Look at verse 12. For, meaning because, well, I guess for makes more sense. I said because. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man and to the measure of the stature which belongs to the, to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by the waves carried out by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, for whom the whole body being fitted together, fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That the reason that teaching and evangelism and, and all of these things, the prophetic, the reason that those things exist is so that the church can be like Jesus. That the church can, can, can function in the design and the, the order that the Lord has set forth in his wisdom. And so I want to I offer you some practical tips of how to read the Bible. Um, I think it, it's, it's hard to write these sort of things and not it sound like a wiring thing. Like this obviously makes a lot of sense to me. But I have a hard time not advising this sort of thing because I, I genuinely think it'll help. <laughs> um, and so if you like are angry at these, these sort of tips, um, we, can, we can talk about it and, and stuff like that. But I honestly think... If you adapt this to your life, I think it'll be really helpful. Number one, read the Bible every day. And I, I, I added to this, make it an appointment. And I think that appointment is really valuable because if I, if I uh, told Caleb that we were going to get coffee at, at 2 o'clock and I didn't show up and he's sitting there at higher grounds until 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, they're getting ready to close and they're like, Caleb, <laughs> dude, what are you doing, man? That would be kind of embarrassing for him, but it would be mostly embarrassing for me. Like, I, I gave him some sort of agreement that I would do this thing, and I didn't follow through. So if you treat reading the Bible like this is something that is an appointment, it's something that is important, because it's not just me learning trivia, I can do that whenever, but if I treat it like I'm meeting with the living God, then it takes, I don't know, man, I think guilt's kind of a good motivator sometimes, <laughs> you know? Um, it's like kids, you know, it's like, 
when you have little kids, it's like it, it would be great if they understood why they were supposed to follow certain rules. But if they just understood you're getting in trouble if you do, <laughs> if you don't do this or, or do this other thing, uh, that's a good motivator for a while. And as you're maturing in the Lord, it's like, this is an appointment. I can't miss this. This is, this is valuable. I, I, I will form my life around making this appointment clear and building any discipline, any discipline, doesn't matter what part of life, any discipline requires consistency. If you only read the Bible when you felt like it, um, that's not discipline. That's not devotion. That's not anything. Number two, um, and this kind of informs the reading every day, because reading every day, you may think like, ah, oh, man, well, I guess I got to set, set aside the first four hours of the day so I can just go deep, you know. Um, be realistic, you know. I, I don't spend four hours a day in the Bible. Like, that, that's beautiful. I mean, if you've got that, man, let's go. But my recommendation to you to start and to, to, to frame this appointment is read an entire chapter or more in one sitting. As people have recommended before, one or two verses a day. And I, I would posit that's not how the Bible was written. That uh, the Bible wasn't really written with verses. <laughs> uh, verses are really helpful for referencing. So when I say, like, look at Luke 24, 36, you know what I'm talking about. It's not like, you remember that part in Luke? Could we all turn there and hopefully find the same plot, part that I'm talking about? It's for referencing. It's for teaching. But when you read, don't just read one or two verses because you may drastically misunderstand what the passage is saying. I, I, I posit to you the book of Job. If you read one or two verses from the book of Job, you not only could misunderstand what the book is about, but you could misunderstand God. And that is a scary, scary thing. Because there are people that are like, oh, well, this is happening because uh, this thing. You know, God must think this about you and this about you. And then you frame your theology around those one or two verses of the day, and you misunderstand who God is. Because at the end of the book, spoiler if you haven't read it, God shows up in a whirlwind tornado and says, all those idiots were wrong. And you read through and you've already like uh, lost friends over things that other people have said and now all of a sudden you're like, oh, dang it, <laughs> those people were wrong. So don't just read one or two verses. I would, I, would, I would encourage you, set the time aside to read at least an entire chapter or more in one sitting. Number three, now this one feels a little extreme, so forgive me, but track with me. I think this is really good. Number three is take notes. And the crowd that has been removed from school is like, oh, you're kidding. Take notes? I have a whole other slide about taking notes. And this is, again, it feels like a wiring thing because I love taking notes. I take notes at staff meetings. Sometimes I'll be watching a movie, you guys, and I'm like, oh, I should write that. No, I don't need to write that down. <laughs> like, there's, nothing's gonna, this isn't going to come up later. Like, what do I, like, I'll be reading fiction. I'll be like, oh, I should underline that. And I should, like, no. No, that, like, I love taking notes. And so don't just hear the personality of a nerd that likes taking notes. Hear the desperate plea of a pastor who hopefully wants to shepherd you into all truth. Take notes. So I wrote down a couple things that will help. If you identify the literary genre of the passage, that will change the way you interpret it. So if you're reading a poem, if you're reading something that is symbolic, that changes the way you think about things. And honestly, if you begin thinking about the book of Revelation, not as like a, uh, a textbook that's going to describe to you future history, if you begin to think about it like, oh, these are themes that we've seen in the Bible before. And you begin to think about it symbolically. And I'm not saying that... I'm not trying to make any sort of wide assertions about the book of Revelation, but if you begin to think about like symbols rather than like 
oh, is that China? Is this Russia? Is this the part in Left Behind where this happened? Like, stop thinking about it that way and start thinking about it like apocalyptic literature was to be understood as, as symbols and images that evoke emotions and, and these kinds of things. It helps you read. Um, this is the thing that I like to do a lot is identify the theme. Because you'll be reading something and you're like, I don't know why this is in here. And, and try to look at the entire thing and be like, what, what is the point? What is the theme? What is, why is this in here? I like to do this. I like to write down things that stick out to me. So if you're reading something and you're reading the book of Genesis, you're having a great time. You get to Genesis 37 and it's the worst chapter in the Bible. It's just hor- horrifying. I won't ruin it for you if you want to go home and read Genesis, Genesis 37. But it's like, why is this here? Write down what sticks out to you. Write down, like, what happened just before this? What happened after this? Write down what sticks out to you. This is so valuable because if the Bible really is, and I, and I truly believe that it is, a unified story about Jesus, write out things that you read about God. In discourse, this is really easy because they'll be like, God is like this. <laughs> but in narrative, it's a little bit harder. In poetry, it's a little bit harder. In wisdom literature, it's a little bit more complicated. But, like, write out things. It's like, oh, man, if, if God answers prayer, that says something about him, that he listens to me, that he's faithful. Write out these things that stick out about God. And this one, I think sometimes people, people shy away from this because people want to come to the Bible maybe as, as pious people. Write down any and all of your questions. If you're afraid of having a stupid question, welcome to the fraternity of stupid questions. If you're wrong, I'm going to try really hard not to judge you. But I've been wrong. I've been wrong from here before. So write down any and all questions you have. It's just valuable. Take notes. So what I do, uh, I have a journal. I journal. I try to journal every single day. But what I have done and has been really helpful for me is I actually bought this Bible specifically um, because it's like single column. You probably can't see it, but you can look at it. Um, it's like single column and all this sort of stuff. And so when I say write notes, I actually take notes in the Bible. And so I have a whole code because it looks like I just color on my Bible. And my kids are very confused about it because I say don't write in books and then I write all over my Bible. Um, But what I do is I will use underlines for the main themes, the themes that stick out, the themes like, okay, I think everything else is kind of surrounding this idea. I'll underline that. I'll, I'll bracket certain phrases that kind of lead you into different places. I'll highlight with like a highlighter things that tell me about God and his character and who he is. And then I actually bought this because there's like wide margins and I'll write like annotations of like things that I have questions, things that stick out to me, things like that. And so it's not a matter of like carrying around. If you want a little notebook, I have so many little notebooks. I can hook you up with a little notebook. I bought them for like 17 cents at Walmart. I have so many of them. Um, And that's a helpful too to have a little little notebook with you. And if you're worried about like it taking you a long time to get through stuff, that's okay. It still counts if it takes a while. And, um, but I, what I was saying is, like, I do it inside the, the Bible itself, and I think that's really helpful. It helps me to, if I've read an entire chapter of the Bible and I'm like, I didn't think anything of that, I probably need to go back and read it again. <laughs> like, I wasn't, I was looking at all the words. I wasn't actually reading and comprehending. Um, I have one more practical tip. And this practical tip is use resources. Now, it may sound less than spiritual to use outside resources, but uh, I think it's something that so many guys and gals over our 
like large English history of reading the Bible have worked really, health, really hard to give us tools to understand the Bible and to engage with it appropriately. And I think it feels strange and, and borderline arrogant to just ignore those things and be like, well, it's just me and Jesus, you know, all those eggheads at the universities came up with cool stuff for me to use and I don't need any of that. I'll just hope that I get it. Um, we don't exist in some sort of uh, vacuum. This isn't Lone Ranger Bible study. This is something that we are a part of in a long history of people that have been reading, inter interpreting, and applying the Bible, and we should uh, take advantage of that. Because if you read by yourself, you're very prone, and I'm not saying this like disrespect you, I'm very prone to blind spots, to biases, to um, things that I will see, and it'd be like, well, it says that, but it couldn't say that, right? <laughs> so I'll just go on believing what I already believe and not change my mind when uh, I have friends and, and uh, scholars and resources that I look to and be like, oh man, I was just ignoring that. I was ignoring something that was clearly right there or something that was just, just below the surface because I, I choose to uh, trust my own blind spots rather than the wisdom of others. So the last thing I have to do is I want to recommend to you some practical resources. Uh, this isn't necessarily like specific things. This is like, top, like, um, like types of things. Number one, and I think this is uh, the most overlooked one, is other people, like people in this room. Uh, this is what I would recommend today. Get together with a buddy or a stranger or somebody that looks like they might know what's talking about or somebody that you want to help get to know what ta they're talking about. Um, get together with somebody today and be like, all right, I'm going to start reading the book of Luke and I'm going to start taking notes every day and I'm going to start doing this and you and I get together and let's, let's talk about our notes. Let's talk about our questions. Let's talk about these sort of things. I, I feel so confident that that will literally just launch your Bible study. That, not literally. That'll figuratively launch your Bible study into space. That you'll be like, wow, I'm getting so much more out of this knowing that there's somebody that I'm going to ask a question to and they may or may not have an answer for it. Or like, how, how much more exciting is it to have something stick out to you and then immediately be able to talk to somebody else about it? I mean, let's talk group text, let's talk coffee dates, let's talk, like, if you have a roommate, let's get together in the morning and, and talk through these things, and you can go slow. I, this is kind of like what Deeper Project is. This is what Deeper Project is for, but Deeper Project is real slow because we do one chapter a week, and that's not really like a super healthy diet of Bible reading, <laughs> reading like one chapter on Tuesday night. Um, but the idea is that we're reading it together, asking questions, pointing out what sticks out to us, those kinds of things. Um, number two... Uh, is commentaries. So Nate and I, uh, I quoted two different commentaries today. Nate and I quote commentaries all the time. And the idea of a commentary is that uh, a scholar or usually a group of scholars take this sort of broad knowledge that they've accumulated over a lot of work and time and compressed it and condensed it to provide comments on language, history, culture about any given passage. So if you're like, what is the deal with 10 virgins? Why are we, this is, I don't even like saying that out loud. What are we talking about? Why are they there? You can read in a commentary what this is referring to, like why this is a thing. It's like, what are these virgins here for? What does that have to do with a wedding? There, I don't know if there were any virgins at my wedding. This is really strange. Sorry, that was a bad joke. That was a bad one. I didn't think, that's not in the notes. Um, <laughs> commentaries comment on those kinds of things and help you to understand them. And don't be discouraged because some older commentaries are legitimately difficult to understand. Um, there are free commentaries on the internet. I have a bunch in my office. You can come steal them from me. 
Um, you can also pop down to the Jesus Cafe, uh, their bookstore. They have a whole shelf of Bible commentaries. A rule that I tend to abide by is don't go for a commentary on the entire Bible. Because I have like three commentaries on the entire Bible, and they're really big. But if you think about like writing something about every verse in the Bible, this is not enough space. <laughs> so I like to go for a book or maybe like a category. Like my favorite commentary upstairs is, is on all the prison letters. Like I have a commentary on all the prison letters, and I quoted uh, uh, Koster Berger, whatever his name is, uh, today, and, and that was from that commentary. And so get a commentary on like a single book or like a section of books, and that can be really helpful to like look up questions, those kinds of things. Another thing, and I, I put this as third and not second because I don't have a whole ton of experience, is study Bibles. Um, I don't, I've never owned a study Bible, but um, I've witnessed a lot of people that get a ton out of a study Bible um, where the commentary is actually on the page with you. Um, I think that can be really helpful. I would love to help you find a study Bible to, uh, to get plugged into. Number four is a weird one, and I think it's really good, is different Bible translations. Um, because people are so eager to discredit Bible translations, and they're just like hungry and hungry for like the perfect golden fell from heaven Bible translation. And if you've ever tried to use Google Translate to speak to someone in a different language, you'll know translation is not simple. Translation is not easy. But I can say with, with some assurance, because other people have said it too, that if you're reading like a mainline English Bible translation, you've got a fantastic foundation to get started. And sometimes people are like, well, I can't understand the Bible because I don't speak Greek. I, I mean, technically nobody does. You know, it's, it's, it's a language that people aren't actively speaking the way that it was written in the Bible before, so we have to translate it. We have to do some sort of interpretive. And that is not to say, like, if you have a Bible in English, baby, it's good. No, it's not. There, there are bad translations. I love Dr. Uh, Mark Ward. He... Uh, works with translation, and he's like an editor and all these sort of things. He did this fantastic series of videos on what a bad Bible translation is. And he's like, uh, there are two categories that, that suffer bad Bible translations. Number one is sectarian Bible translations. And what that means is that there's like a religious sect that wanted really bad for the Bible to fit their agenda. And that's something that you want to avoid. And I won't say into the microphone Bible translations like that, but I'll tell you later. Um, <laughs> I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings broadly, but like I'll hurt people's feelings privately. Um, <laughs> um, the, second, uh, the second category of Bible translation that is bad Bible translation is what he himself called crack pottery, when people who have no business translating the Bible are trying to translate the Bible. And so uh, avoid those two categories, but I'm going to list a few for you. Um, Nate generally... Uh, on any given Sunday, preaches from the New King, New King James Version, the NKJV. And I think that's completely sufficient and useful for reproof and teaching and training in righteousness. Um, and then you'll be able to keep up with, with Nate. I know Nate reads from the NKJV. It's very useful, very helpful. I like the NIV. I like the ESV. I like the NLT. I've been reading personally like daily from the, uh, a more recent one called the CSB. And what I always preach from is the New American Standard Bible, 1995. Um, they've updated it. I haven't read the 2020 version, but the 1995 is real good, so I would recommend that to you <laughs> as well. Um, and that's what I generally preach from. But like, uh, the best Bible translation is the Bible translation that you actually read. Um, we can talk about literal versus like phrase by phrase, word for word, but it all takes an interpretation. It all takes that sort of work. So if you have one of those that I listed 
read it. And that's a great English Bible translation. If you're not a native English speaker, don't like break your neck. Get a Bible in your language, you know? Like um, it, it still works. There are smart people in other languages too. Uh, number five, and this one's funny. I've said that about most of them. It just feels weird to recommend things like this from, from this setting. And it feels funny to recommend one digital <laughs> resource. But I don't know if I need to tell you this. The internet is a sketchy place. Especially when it comes to religious and spiritual things. You will find people that say bananas wild stuff in a very convincing format in HD. And so... There's a resource that, uh, that we use here at the church all the time. We use it in Deeper Project. We, we reference it a bunch, and it's the Bible Project. In the Bible Project, they do animated videos on books of the Bible and Bible themes, and their whole aim is, is helping you to read the Bible, not just telling you what the Bible says. And so um, if you're like starting a book and you're starting a book like um, Malachi, you're starting Malachi in the Old Testament, and you're like, well... I don't know exactly what's going on. I'm not sure what's, what's happening. They have summary videos that are really helpful. Um, they have like theme videos based on like recurring themes. Um, and I highly recommend their teaching. I quoted their teacher twice, this, uh, this sermon by itself. And they're top notch and they're totally free. So check them out. I think they're really helpful. So I want to pray for us this morning. Um, I want to pray for us that we would uh, take this and we're calling this series Spiritual Disciplines because it's not just something where it's like, now that you've heard me talk about it, it's going to be outrageously easy for you and you will never experience friction in Bible reading ever again. Open heavens over all of your Bibles. Everything's totally cool. Um, I think it takes dedication and consistency. It takes falling and getting back up and that sort of thing. And so I want to pray for you, for you from the scripture. Um, I think of Luke 24, where we were before, and um, as it continues, Jesus uh, continues to appear to his disciples and, and different people, and towards the end of the chapter, towards the end of this biography of Jesus, it says this in uh, verse 44, now he, he being Jesus, said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead uh, the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name in all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.